Hey, South Bend City Church Digital Fam, Mariah here. So glad that you chose to join us today and even more glad that you are a part of our community. Before we get into today's teaching, there's some announcements and a quarterly financial update. And when we were talking about whether or not to include this on the podcast, we decided that for those of you that call South Bend City Church home, it's important for you to know this information as well. However, if you're looking specifically for today's teaching and couldn't care less about the financial update, you can go ahead and skip to right about the 11 minute mark. All right, you're still here? All right, that means you're sticking around. Uh, So today, before we get to announcements, I want to share one announcement that was not shared in person because it has been created specifically for you and for those that couldn't be a part of the in-person event. And what I'm talking about is new to South Bend City Church online tables. It's an opportunity if you call South Bend City Church to be home and you consider yourself to be new to get to know us a little bit better, who we are, why we do what we do, and get to know some of the staff a little bit as well. Hopefully you take advantage of this opportunity for community, and if you want to join, go ahead and just let us know that you're going to be there to expect you so we can send you the Zoom link. You can go down to the form in the show notes below and quickly sign up to let us know that you'll be there. All right, for the rest of the announcements, I'm going to hand it over to Lynn Peisker, who gave our announcements in our gatherings this weekend. For those of you that don't know, Lynn is actually a full-time volunteer staff member. Yes, you heard that right. She volunteers her time full-time to be a member of our staff and she is a project manager and just a wealth of wisdom so let's join them with lynn and then she'll hand it over to matt for the quarterly update we are so glad you are here this morning whether this is your first time here whether you've been coming here for years whether you're a believer or a doubter welcome to this jesus-centered community a place of grace and peace for our community and the world We have some values. We call them mantras here. Uh, They're represented in the art on the wall. And we ascribe to these. And one of them that's so important to me is the mantra, everyone an icon. That means as human beings, every human being, we are created in the image of God. And we gather together and honor that today. So we're really glad you're here. I have a few announcements to share with you. One is that one week from today, October 16th, uh, from 6 to 8 p.m., is the student table kickoff. This is, yes, this is for students in 6th through 12th grade. There's information on our website. It's really easy to find. Just go and click on students. And if you are a, an adult who's interested in mentoring students in middle and high school, There's a place for you to check out the information there. So one week, we're going to kick that off. Our tables are where we gather together here. And this one is especially dedicated to students. Speaking of dedicated, Family Dedication Sunday is coming up on October 30th. Uh, This is a time set aside where we honor all kinds of families who are entrusted with the care of children who want to uh, commit to sharing with them the love of God, the good news of Jesus, and where we as a community can come alongside those families to support them. Sunday, October 30th, we ask that you go to our website in the What's Happening section and click on that link because there is a form if you want to be involved as a family that you'll need to fill out for us, and we'll get you all set up for that. You know, the way that this community kind of functions in the world is through the generosity of donors. 
and donations. And there are a couple of ways you can do that if you want to be a part in that way. And it's real easy to do online. Again, I'll point you to the website. It's a beautiful creation, easy to use. And um, you can do that. And there's also donation boxes here in the foyer. And speaking of finances, you know, we're really committed to transparency here. We want you to know what's going on. And so with that, I'm going to ask Matt Graybill, our executive pastor, to come up. And Matt's going to give you a little quarterly update. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, so my name is Matt. It's great to be with you here today. Uh, part of my role as an executive pastor is I get to help lead the staff team kind of day to day and then uh, also have involvement with our operations and helping lead our ministries. So it's great to be with you. Um, thank you. First, before we get into a financial update, I want to say thank you for your generosity. Um, we are able to exist as a community because people give of their not only their resources and finances, but of their time and their talents as well. This community is wicked talented. There's a lot of ways that you show up. Um, one was just this past Friday night with Stu Baker Talks, and it was really amazing to be able to hear all the things that happened that evening. So I just want to say thank you for that. Before I get into like the numbers, we'd just love to give a little context for the numbers. It was like last year that we decided that we uh, wanted to give these quarterly updates just to be able to be transparent and share with you where we are with finances. Um, and then here in the, just after the new year, our leadership decided we were going to shift our fiscal year from January to actually July. So a couple of reasons for that. Churches are pretty common for like ebbs and flows in terms of giving, but also spending. Uh, so at the end of the year, the end of the calendar year, there tends to be a lot more people that are wanting to give with year-end giving. giving. But there's also tends to be more expenses that way, which makes it a little bit harder to plan for a budget. Um, it also makes it hard to like forecast for what the future year is going to look like. So this past year, starting in July, we actually changed our, our fiscal year to end in June and start in July. So when I share the numbers with you, don't freak out when you see your year to date and it looks really, really low um, because this is only for our first quarter. Okay. Um, so our, our fiscal year ended in June and then started in July, so we'll give a quarterly update that way. We've given these all along the way. So in uh, April, we shared with you that we were about $60,000 um, behind in our budget. And that was something that we were monitoring and just kind of keeping an eye on. Uh, again, as, as giving kind of ebbs and flows, we just wanted to be really mindful of that and see what was happening. And then we came back in June and shared with you that that, that decrease had actually grown to over 100000 And so at the end of that budgeted year, we need to make some changes going forward. And so as I shared with you in June, our, our budget is made up of three areas, ministry, operations, and personnel. And so when we got to that spot, we looked at all three of those areas of ways of making significant um, uh, cuts to the budget. Unfortunately, we had to make the painful decision to actually step into the personnel side of our budget, um, and we needed to actually eliminate two staff positions. At that point, we had eight positions, eight staff positions, six that are full-time and two that were uh, part-time. And those two positions that were eliminated were held by Ryan Yazel and Amanda Harris. So that's been a really difficult um, decision that we had to make. So the other piece of context is in wanting to care for them and care for the family, um, we wanted to honor 
them by also paying their salary um, through November 30th, along with their benefits. So when you see this quarterly update, you'll see a decrease, but that's actually because we're still continuing to pay their salaries through November 30th. So um, just to give some context there. So here are some of the numbers as we kind of talk through that. So a quarterly report, again, our fiscal year started in July. So this is where these numbers come from. So general fund giving uh, year to date starting in July, again, is 182881 Our budgeted expenditures uh, is $202,024. And then our actual expenditures are 203569 a couple of notes there real quick. Um, obviously, that's a decrease. We're gonna, we know we're gonna continue to dip into our savings between now and November 30th because we wanna care for those two employees that we had to eliminate those, those roles. The other thing, you might be like, hey, why, why are you spending more than you have coming in? There are certain times like here in the fall where there actually tends to be more expenses because of things like uh, needing to pay for children's curriculum that won't show up in other parts of the year. So there's some times where that's a little bit higher than, than others. A couple other notes as we go into the next slide. Uh, our total giving year to date is 374,482. Uh, so just to explain that a little bit, you might see online, if you're giving online, that we actually have general fund giving, but then we also have lines like CARE and Tribune Project and Foster Care and Adoption Fund. Um, we keep all of those funds separately because there's people that are really specific about saying, hey, I want to give to people that are in need, and so I'm going to do that through care. Or I want to help support a foster uh, family and, and care for them or care for the, the children that they're caring for. And so we keep that separate. Um, encouraging to see that our total giving donors is 220, and uh, general fund is 177 and 20 donors. Just to give context for that, guys, uh, our average attendance, including kids, is 310,000, or 310,000. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> I hate sharing these, like, num numbers. I'm like, I'm, like, gonna, like, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of people. 310 uh, pe people average uh, for us as a church um, during the course of a weekend. So just Really appreciate how many of you obviously give to this community and making things happen here. Um, a couple other notes. If you give to the Tribune Project, then you should be getting a monthly update. We'll give a church-wide update on October 23rd, a little bit more about that project and how it's going. Uh, and if you have any questions along the way, feel free to pull me aside or shoot a note to info at South Bend City Church and it will find its way to me. But really grateful for your generosity and how you care for this community. Thanks. All right, friends, we are in week five of our Old Creed New World series. Today, we explore the particularity of the creed by discovering the personal and political implications of Jesus as the Son of God. All I have to say is buckle up as we join in with the rest of our community. Hey, I'm Jason. If we haven't met, and as a community, we've been working through a series that we call Old Creed new world. This is us uh, listening to this way of narrating reality that's called the Apostles' Creed. It's this ancient document that followers of Jesus wrote together to essentially say this is the outline of the story that we trust, that we've read in the Gospels and learned from Jesus. So that's, that's kind of what we're working through right now. Not just old creed, though, but putting it conversationally with the world that we're living in right now. Because it's, 
easy sometimes to like listen to this ancient story and to kind of ignore how it connects to the world that we're living in, or even more to ignore the questions that it raises about the world that we're living in. And we don't want to do that. We actually want to live in the tension between those two things. Uh, I was thinking about this this summer. I was in conversation with a stranger at a bar, because that's where that happens usually, right? And I'm, and I'm talking to this stranger. It happens to be in an airport lounge, actually, which is where that happens even more, right? And um, so we're talking about like the world and news and economics, and then we get into this person's line of work, and they're in business, and we're talking about that work. And I'm, I'm always like fascinated by other people's lines of work, and so I have lots of questions for him, and he asks me some questions about his work and the things that he's working on, and eventually the question I always dread, especially in situations like this, is what do you do for a living, right? And I, I might have told you guys this before. Sometimes I, I don't lie. Sometimes I say I work in the nonprofit sector. It's true. Thank you. Sometimes I say I'm a social entrepreneur, church planter. Uh, but this time I told the full truth, the whole truth, and absolutely nothing but the truth. And I said I'm a pastor. And of course, his questions for me were like, wait, we just had a long conversation about the modern world and I think he was kind of saying, you seem like a person who's paying attention to the modern world. Therefore, like, how can you believe or, or trust that old stuff? I thought we've grown beyond that. I thought this life that we live now has sort of made all that outdated. And as he said that, I was thinking to myself, it's actually the case that the more I pay attention to the world we're living in, and, and also the deeper I go into the tradition, so not just the surface of it, but the deeper I go into it, the more I find that this story of faith has really profound things to say to the world we're living in right now. And I don't know if that just sounds like propaganda to you or the thing I'm supposed to say. I mean, I don't know how to convince you that I really believe that, but I tell you, like I'm telling you, I keep finding that. And I think today is actually going to be another one of those examples where if you really dig into what the tradition is doing, to what the Jesus story is saying, to how it's working in the world, you find out that it has profound things to say to some of the biggest challenges we're facing in the world right now and some of the most exciting things that are happening in the world right now. I, I want to kind of make that case for you today as we go a little bit further. So that's the work that we're going to do. Uh, we're going to step on some toes in the room today, but we're going to do it for everyone, myself included. Um, so we're going to get into it. Here's, here's the beginning of the creed that we've been looking at. It begins, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We've already talked through that, but I want to remind you, those words, we believe, We've already said this, they, they might mean less just the things that are in your head, the ideas that you're thinking about, and more like where you root your heart. Like what story do you trust to make sense of your own life and the world that we're living in? And then after we say we believe, uh, we as a community are learning to trust this story, then we hear about God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, and last week we worked through Jesus Christ. And I know this is review, but um, I also know that like, nobody comes to church every week anymore, so you're, go you're always going to get like previously on. Uh, so this is, this is the previously on part of the sermon. We said this last week, you go from God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, big, expansive, universal vision of the divine, right? And then really quickly, the creed goes from this big, expansive thing, and it drops down into the particularity of Jesus, and we talked about that, that tension last week. And this week I wanted to tell you another story about how you could think about that tension there. Because uh, I've wrestled with that. Like, I'm, I'm interested in world religions. I think they're fascinating. I've done work around the world with sisters and brothers from other faith traditions, and I've found them to be 
really inspiring people often. Like I've, I've found them to be um, people of great holiness and, and beauty. And so I've wrestled with all of this. And as I was wrestling with this, I was listening to an interview. This is years ago. I'm in my bathroom, like brushing my teeth or shaving or something and listening to a podcast with who might be the world's first great expert in world religions, a guy named Houston Smith. Houston Smith grew up the, child, the, the child of Methodist missionaries. Uh, he died just recently. And he wrote um, what became like one of the world's first encyclopedias of world religions, where he chronicled expressions of world religion all around the globe. And this is late in his life, and he's in this interview. And uh, this is Terry Gross, Fresh Air, NPR. She's interviewing him, and she asked him about his personal spiritual practice. And he actually said, well, so today, for example, I, uh, he said, you know, I began with some yoga. He said, I pray uh, the five um, daily prayers that my Muslim sisters and brothers pray throughout the day. He said, I read the Gospels from the lectionary text. And then he interrupted himself. And he said, but I have to tell you, Terry, I don't recommend this. She said, okay. And he said, I'm reminded of a proverb I heard years ago when I was doing my work. Better to have one well 60 feet deep than 10 wells six feet deep. Now, we could argue all day about apologetics and religious truth and all that kind of stuff. Those are other conversations for other times. That just did something in me. I am all for, like, walking with our sisters and brothers of, of many traditions. I think, it's, I think we're called to do it. I think it's good and beautiful. I'm all for learning from anyone we can learn from, and I think any truth is God's truth. I believe all of that. I also know that there's a difference between being like fascinated with well technology and being thirsty. And I also have come to believe that the most transformative resources of any tradition are the ones that you access in the depths of it. And something just like locked into my spirit that day, which was, I, I just want to go all the way in as deep down as I can get in this thing. Because the truth is, I'm really thirsty. I'm thirsty for the things that Jesus talks about when he talks about like living water in the heart. About like a, a spring that wells up inside that can make you alive and can nourish the world around you. I'm thirsty for that. And so um, the particularity of this creed um, when you think about like a, a well 60 feet deep, the particularity becomes really helpful because you, if you're going to dig a well, you need to know exactly where to dig, right? Like it doesn't really do to be like somewhere in that general direction there's water, right? It's much more helpful to say right here, X marks the spot, just keep digging. And the water that you're thirsty for is down there somewhere. And that's the way that I, I think about all this uh, particularity. I just wanted to say that as we keep working through the details of the creed, because the creed is particular in all sorts of ways, and we're going to see some other particularity that it offers as we go uh, into its next few words. So let's keep going. It says, we believe in Jesus Christ, and then it says this, God's only son. Now, son of God might be the most famous title for Jesus besides Christ uh, in scripture and in Christian history and all around the world. And God's only son, that is particular language. Let me show you one of the places that we get it from. This is Mark's gospel, the very first sentence of it, where Mark, telling the story of Jesus, says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. By the way, remember last week, that's Christ, because Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed. So you get that right there. Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. 
Now, one thing that that whole sentence does, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is it locates Jesus in the Jewish story. So we already talked about the Christ thing, the Messiah thing, the anointed thing, the king thing. That comes from Jewish history and expectation, right? Son of God also locates Jesus in the Jewish story because in the Old Testament, Son of God, uh, well, it's a word for Israel. In Exodus 4, we read that God is calling Israel my firstborn son. Uh, We also read ideas about the kings that God raises up as God's children. It's sort of the idea that God um, is working through the kings that God raises up, and it's also the idea that God gets to discipline the kings that God raises up. So it definitely locates Jesus in the Jewish story that he's a part of as a Jewish person, but it also locates Jesus in the Roman world that he and his people have been subjected to ever since the empire took over their land. See, so for example, like at the time that Jesus is born, there's an emperor He'd been called Octavius, and then he took on the name Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus, who reigned from 27 years before Christ, roughly the 14 years after the birth of Christ, roughly, Caesar Augustus was known as the Son of God. It was thought that when a a comet had been seen in the sky, that it was Julius Caesar, his predecessor, being divinized or made a god, which made Augustus the Son of God. And at this time, you can actually find coins. Archaeologists have these coins. They have the image of Augustus on the coin. And it says on the coin, Son of God. Yes, I don't know if you know this, that when the Gospels come out of the gate saying that Jesus is the Son of God, this is blatantly political. This isn't just locating him in the Jewish story. It's also setting him up in confrontation with all the power games that are being played by the empire that's taken over their land. When, when Mark begins his story, this is the story of Jesus, the Son of God. It's saying, we actually think there's a different power play happening in the world, and it's not the power play of the empire, and it's not the way that the, the emperor plays the emperor's games. It's a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king, and it calls for our loyalty to this, not that. Now, it's not just that Mark begins his gospel calling Jesus the Son of God, which is playing with fire, right? I mean, during the empire, like life in the empire, you come out of the gate saying that that Caesar's not the Son of God, Jesus is. You are playing with fire. But then watch what happens at the end of Mark's gospel. Mark is doing this really intentionally, the way that he writes his story. At the end of his gospel, Jesus has been crucified, and there's a figure in the story, not just anyone, not just a Jewish person, not one of the disciples. There's a Roman in the story. Watch what happens here, Mark chapter 15. This is the centurion. This is a Roman soldier. This is a person whose job is to serve the emperor and to exercise the power of the empire over these people. When the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, this is at the cross, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That's the bookend on Mark's gospel. Mark comes out of the gate, first sentence, Jesus was the son of God. And just as if to put salt in the wound or just to, like, raise the stakes, then he has a Roman centurion saying, this man is the Son of God. And he doesn't say it when Jesus heals people. And he doesn't say it when the crowds gather around Jesus and he's got all of the authority of of a mob who's listening to him. He says it when Jesus has been abandoned and betrayed and executed by the state. He says it when Jesus has laid down his life, which makes me think he didn't just decide, okay, so maybe the emperor isn't the son of God, and maybe Jesus is. This is a person going through a total conversion 
who's willing to see that real power is love laying itself down, not a sword coming to take you down. I mean, do you sense the shift in this person's entire like, life and worldview and experience? Real power is a life laying itself down in love, not a sword coming to take you down. That's the way that the gospel ends, and I think it's the kind of conversion that it's inviting us into. So the creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And maybe you've said that creed before, and um, maybe you've heard preachers talk about the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to do some Trinity work later in the series, because that's also important. Um, there's so many angles on, on this thing, and I hope another thing you're discovering is that these, these little phrases, they just keep unfolding in the world. They have more and more to say. But today, if we're going to hear the phrase, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, and we're going to talk not just about an old creed, but a new world, then I think I have to say some things um, in order to have integrity that um, might feel like I'm stepping on some toes. But here's the thing. If you found out that the preacher had done their best to study the text, to understand the theology, to understand what scripture means and what the creed means. If you, if, you, if you found out that the preacher did their best to understand those things, and then the preacher looked around at the world that we were living in right now and saw some very obvious implications. But then the preacher walked into church on Sunday and didn't say a word about it. Would you respect that preacher? Thank you. <laughs> That's how church becomes this sort of like passive-aggressive, spiritual bypassy kind of space where we never talk about anything real. Because talking about real things can, can be complicated. But we need to talk about some real things because we are reading the part of the creed that says we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have a son of God. We, we have an authority figure. We have a certain vision of a kingdom that we are learning to trust and give our hearts and our lives to, which means we need to be vigilant about all the other kingdoms and all the other power structures and all the counterfeit claims that are also demanding our trust and our affection. Um, one of the clearest takeaways from mountains of social science seeking to understand the relationship between our faith and our politics. One of the clearest takeaways from mountains of data is that when Christians are faced with a conflict between their faith commitments and their political group, they will overwhelmingly give up their faith commitments and choose their political group. And this is not anecdotal or theoretical. This is documented rampantly in all the social science. It seems that what happens is we start by looking for alliances. You know, we take our convictions into the political sphere, and we, and we, start by, we look for alliances where we can work out our beliefs in the political sphere. But the problem is alliances turn into allegiances, loyalties. And pretty soon, we start heaping messianic hopes on political leaders. Um, when ironically, one of the reasons Jesus was crucified is he actually failed to live up 
to the messianic expectations that all the people had. Did you know that? One of the reasons Jesus was crucified is he wasn't the kind of Messiah they were hoping for. Because they, like us, wanted somebody to take the world with force. Because we all want that, don't we? We figure out whoever it is that seems to like look like us or sound like us or make us feel safe, and then we hope that they will amass all of the power and then take the world for us, right? And Jesus, early on, he's, he has the makings of that kind of leader because he's doing miracles, and he's confronting power structures. And the people start to think, now we've got our Messiah, now we've got our king, and then he lets them down again and again and again. He refuses to play the group games because one group says, you're with us, and he says, no, nah, not really. I love you, I'm not with you. Another group says, good, you're with us. He says, no, nah, not really, I'm, I'm, I love you, but I'm not with you. Not if being with you means being against them. He just does that in every direction over and over again because he's not the kind of Messiah that they thought he was going to be. So let me talk for a minute about alliances and allegiances and messianic leaders in the world that we're living in. And if you're uncomfortable, don't worry. Everybody else will be uncomfortable by the time I'm done, I promise. <laughs> and I'm available after the gathering. Um, one thing that is happening right now in the world is a strand of Christian nationalism that is deeply anti-Christ. By that I mean the idea that the empire could be Christian. Um, now we could have a really nuanced conversation about the ways the, the United States of America has, has done good and the ways that it's done evil. We can talk about ways that this thing was, was set up to try to honor some Christian convictions, and we can talk about other ways that it was built upon deeply anti-Christ movements, whether it's what we did to indigenous people or slavery for 400 years or even the way the world is built today. We could go on and on. But I'm telling you, if by Christian we mean it looks like Jesus, which, by the way, is the only definition of Christian that has any credibility in the world, right? If by Christian we mean it, it looks like Jesus then an empire can't be Christian. Empires have weapons. Jesus has no weapons. Empires do what they do by force. It's not how Jesus does what he does. Um, if you're wondering what I mean by Christian nationalism, I mean um, when we kind of make Christian an identity group, there's Christians and there's everybody else, and then we try to make this nation a place just for us. Now, I could go on and on on that, um, but it's alarming to watch some of what's happening in our politics today uh, around the whole Christian nationalism thing. And I just, I don't know what to do with a creed that so explicitly says Jesus is our vision of power, and it's a radically subversive vision of power, and Jesus is our allegiance, and Jesus is our loyalty in a world where people are acting as if because you're loyal to Jesus, you have to be loyal to me, right? This is less about who you vote for and more about the kind of messianic energy that is wrapped around some of our political leaders. We've seen it, for the record, on both sides. And I'm, I, this is not a both sidesism kind of thing, but I, I do want to call this out too. One thing I can't stand is preaching to the choir. 
And um, there are churches in America where you can pretty much assume that everyone in the room votes conservatively or votes for Republicans. That's not Stop and City Church. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I can't stand preaching to the choir. I have never once seen Jesus preach to the choir in the Gospels. Preaching to the choir is when you say something that everybody already agrees with, and they all just feel really good about it, and they're, they're really happy about the fact that the preacher said something that somebody else needs to hear. I can't stand that. It makes my skin crawl. It's not what we're here to do. So let me just keep stepping on toes, and let me just say a thing I observed a few years ago for South Bend City Church. I found myself saying this in a meeting a week or two ago, and I thought, I should say that to our church and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> Christian nationalism has become a battle cry for some on the political right, and it is antichrist. Among the South Bend City Church family, a couple of years ago, I found myself thinking, I think there are a lot of us who would say honestly, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus, but I sure believe in Pete Buttigieg. Everybody okay? <laughs> Can I say that with love for this community? There is a moment of ironic staging here where uh, Mayor Pete was doing his official announcement that he was definitely running for president. And it was going to happen downtown outdoors, but with um, weather and rain and all that, they had to move it indoors. And so with roughly 48 hours notice before Sunday, we found out that on Palm Sunday, Pete was going to hold his big national announcement right here in the loading dock that you drove by to get to our front door. We found out we were going to lose access to parking. We found out that like secret ser service and people were involved. It was very, very, very messy thing. And so in an ironic moment of staging, we were having a Palm Sunday service, which is all about people heaping messianic expectations on a political leader and Jesus ultimately failing all those expectations. And here we were gathered when like literally right outside our door, like 10,000 people showed up for a person who in my own working relationship with Mayor Pete in the city, I found to be a great person to work with. And I'm very thankful that we had him as a mayor. And yet, Let's not act like it's other people who are susceptible to heaping messianic expectations on the people in power in our day. It's all of us. That doesn't mean that in any given election, a vote for either candidate is somehow equally compatible with our faith. I'm, I'm not trying to do that kind of both sides-ism stuff. I'm, I'm just saying there's something that runs deeper than thinking rationally about how to vote in a way that aligns with your faith convictions. There's something deeper, which is the experience of the heart and the desperate feeling we have inside that we still need a Messiah, that we still need a Son of God to show up, to take care of us, to preserve us, to protect us, to give us the future that we long for. When the Creed is trying to say, you already have that. Stop looking for it. At the level of the heart, the soul, the existential anxiety in us about whether we are seen and whether we are going to be okay, that's meant to be addressed, not through whoever's in the White House, but by the way the creed talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God has done something deeper and more enduring than whoever happens to control the power structures of the day. Now, there's a, a phrase that Dr. Martin Luther King popularized 
about the world that we want to build together, the world that we should build together. The phrase is the beloved community. And what strikes me about that phrase, beloved community, is that Jesus' own experience as son of God was rooted in his own experience of belovedness. And I want to kind of wrap this up here with this last move. Because what I'm getting at is not just the thoughts in our head about politics today, but the existential angst in our hearts about what's going on in the world and where our hope is. And I think it's really hard to build a beloved community for others when we don't know that we are beloved too. Belovedness has to come from belovedness. When your effort to build a good world for your neighbor or even your enemy calls you into postures that cost you something, it'll be hard to do that if you don't know your own belovedness. If you don't know that you are held in the love of God. And it strikes me that Jesus, the Son of God, went through his own testing, through his own confrontation with whether he trusted that beyond all the power structures of his day, beyond the crowds that wanted to hoist him on their shoulders and call him king, that beyond all of that, he was held by a deeper love that would sustain him so that he could lay his life down and show that Roman centurion a completely different vision of power. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is baptized, and as he's baptized, he hears this declaration from God saying, this is my beloved son. And then he goes into the wilderness where this is tested. And I think these are the same tests waiting for all of us if we're going to know our own belovedness, if it's going to run deep enough that we can remain loyal and faithful to the Son of God rather than giving our allegiances and our loyalties to the powers of the day. Let me show you how that story goes in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, this is right after he's baptized, and here's this beloved son story. Full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry greatest understatement in the history of scripture the devil says to jesus if you are the son of god you hear that being tested if that's really who you are if that's really where your life is rooted command this stone to become bread and jesus answered and is written man shall not live by bread alone now i don't know if you have felt tempted to try to actually turn a stone into bread but a lot of people have observed this is the human temptation to produce for yourself for your work to be your identity for you to make yourself relevant in a world that asks, are you useful? Right? This is that moment at the social engagement where you're meeting strangers and you dread that same thing I dreaded at the airport lounge that day when they ask you, what do you do? As if your own identity rises and falls on that question. As if your own security rises and falls on that question. And the, the question is, can you know that you belong, that you are held, that you are loved by something deeper than your resume or your paycheck or like how you were thought of with your role at the workplace, right? It goes on, next temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority in their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now in this moment, I imagine myself being Jesus and I'm like, I know how much good I would do with all that power, right? Give me all the kingdoms of the world, and, and I'll, I'll do so much good with that power. And he knows, I think, that we all forget, which is that, like power corrupts us. And so he turns it down. Next slide. He answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And then one last temptation. He took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is the epicenter of the culture of his people. Jerusalem is the religious, the political, and the economic center of his people. He's there at the nexus of everything. It's as if, it's as if Times Square and the Vatican and, uh, I don't know, the Vegas Strip all got stacked on top of one another <laughs> in one location. He brings Jesus to the pinnacle of that place and said, show everyone here how spectacular you are. Show them that God sees you, that God protects you, that God loves you. Put on a show for the people to demonstrate how spectacular you are. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Next slide. He will command his angels. This is the devil saying, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus, the Son of God, knows his belovedness as the Son of God. Not just in his head, but in his heart, in his bones, with his life. And I think it's that deep knowing of his own belovedness and belonging with God that allows him to live a life radically independent of all the power games that were being played in his day. And followers of Jesus in the year 2022 who are learning to trust a creed that says, we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Caesar is not king. Followers of Jesus in the year 2022 that are going to trust this story, we have to find our way to our own radical independence. That doesn't mean a lack of political engagement. But we better root ourselves in something deeper than that engagement so that alliances don't become allegiances. So that when forced with... Um, a con confrontation between our faith commitments and our political identity, the faith commitment wins. We've got to keep working that out because we are seeing symptoms all over on the left and, and the right, especially the right right now. We are seeing symptoms right now that we have lost our capacity to maintain that independence. And it will not be pretty if we keep playing that game. Now, one other beautiful thing about the creed and the story that we trust is even though it says Jesus is God's only son, we also read all over the scriptures that we have been adopted into that very same family as beloved daughters and sons, which means that Jesus is our big brother. And there's nothing like a big brother to show you how the family works. Nothing like a big brother to walk with you in your own belovedness and belonging. When you find yourself tempted to root your identity in what you do and how you produce and whether you are relevant in the world, Jesus is right there with you, able to help you root yourself in something deeper because you have nothing to prove. When you find yourself tempted by the kingdoms, by the power structures, Jesus is right there like whispering to you saying, you don't have to play that game. The good that you're going to do in the world is not going to come because you play those games. It's going to kind of come another way. When you want to make yourself spectacular, to show that you are really something in the world, as if that would fill that void in your heart that longs for love. Jesus is right there whispering to you, walking with you, saying, I can root your life in a deeper belovedness that won't be up for grabs based on whether or not other people think that you are spectacular. And so um, as a way of wrapping this up, I thought we would meditate for a moment on Jesus' own baptism story. First, so that we could be there with Jesus, seeing him and hearing God declare him son of God. I mean, this is not just an idea for the head, it's a meditation of the heart. 
to know more and more and more deeply that real power, the kind of power that builds the world that God longs for is vested not in swords that take you down, but in lives laid down. Like if you're gonna learn to see that the way the centurion did, we wanna see Jesus called Son of God during his baptism. And then we're gonna go through this meditation one more time, and we're gonna find ourselves in that exact same story. Because baptism is something for all of us, and I know not all of us have had that experience, but all of us are invited to know ourselves adopted in the family as beloved daughters and sons. And that's not just a theological category, it's a category for the heart, for your bones, for your body, to know what it is that you trust. And so um, this is a practice that we've been kind of working through uh, throughout this series. It's sometimes called Electio Divina. It's just a way of being present to the text and finding ourselves in the story. And I want to um, offer it again for us today. This is also a practice that you can take with you into the week. Um, but whatever you walked in here with today, whether it's the same concerns that I've expressed about the political world that we inhabit right now, or maybe it's a far more personal um, question that you're facing of your own belovedness and belonging, I hope you can bring that question to this experience in Scripture, in the text, and find yourself in it. So that little by little we can grow into the people who say with our hearts and with our lives, we believe not in Caesar, but in Jesus, the beloved Son of God. And Jesus is teaching us how to be beloved daughters and sons. So let's um, enter into this text now. Uh, if it helps you, you can put your feet flat on the floor. You don't have to, but you might want to find a posture that helps you just sort of um, be present and relaxed and intentional. I'll pray and then I'll read this text slowly and I'll prompt us to find ourselves in it uh, at different moments. Loving God, I pray that we would bring our hearts, our minds, our bodies to this meditation. I pray that we would bring our hopes and our fears into this meditation. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly and to see ourselves clearly. Knowing this might be slow work, For some today, you might do something dramatic, and for others, it might just be the, the slow cultivation of a deeper belonging in you. And in that spirit of prayer, we turn to the text. As I read this, I hope first we might just imagine ourselves there watching these events. that you'll sense the crowd of others around you, that you'll hear the water splash as Jesus enters it, that the eyes of your imagination will look up to the heavens as they are opened, that your ear will hear not my voice, but the voice from heaven as I read this text. Now when all the people were baptized, 
and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And it said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And now, I hope we can find ourselves in the water. You stand there in the river, and you find yourself submerged under its surface. You feel the current. The water may feel cleansing to you. Like a fresh bath drawn. Removing all the dirt that's accumulated on your body as you walk dusty roads all day. It may feel cleansing for you. Or the water may feel like a death to you. Rather than a wonderful experience, under that surface, you don't know where you'll make your way to the top again. You feel tossed by the current of the water. Life has come at you hard, left you disoriented, you're having a hard time breathing. And then a hand underneath your back and another on your chest grabs you, and pulls you up out of the water. And though you had been afraid, you might never find your way to the surface again. Your face breaks the surface of the water, you come up and you breathe. And you've never been so grateful for breath. And then as you realize slowly that you had always been held by wise, strong, capable hands, as you realize that you weren't ever actually a danger down there, you realize that this baptism was an experience of learning to trust. And then you hear a voice from heaven. And it takes you a second to realize that this voice of God is speaking not about others, but about you. 
And this voice from heaven says, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And there's a, a protest that rises up in your spirit and you want to negotiate. You want to say, no, 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 I, I've, I've screwed up a lot. I'm sorry. I know. Uh, I, I got a lot to figure out. I still don't have it all put together. And the voice just sort of shushes you and says, that's not the point. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And yes, there will be temptations ahead. This identity will be challenged left and right. But you are invited to come back to this moment again and again. To know that like your brother Jesus, you are a child of God. And to know that in the moments when that identity is tested, you might find him there with you teaching you the family ways. As you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back to this moment. Uh, it might be good for us to come back to that contemplation through the week just return to that text and to find ourselves in it. Uh, this is an old story, but it has really radical things to say to us today. And the good news is it, it's not just words on a page. It describes a living presence who's with us and helping us grow in this together. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? May we be a family that is learning to trust that Jesus is the Son of God. A family that knows the ways of God are the things that look like him. That radical, self-giving love is the way that we work with God and one another to build the world that we need. May we together be vigilant about the ways that alliances become allegiances. May we maintain a radical independence and loyalty to the kingdom of God so that we may love and serve our neighbors and our enemies in the way of Jesus. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. I'm, after, I'm around after the gathering if you want to yell at me. We can talk then. <laughs> See you next week.